Good morning. This is the uh, scripture text for this morning. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse seven, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You can be seated. Thank you, Oscar. Uh, my name is Aaron Spurlock. Uh, I am one of the pastoral apprentices here at Midlands Church, um, and I get the opportunity to preach this morning um, on Palm Sunday. And admittedly, this uh, this text that we're looking at today in Second Corinthians, um, it's it's not a uh, text about Palm Sunday. And so I, I felt like it would be a stretch to kind of make it one. Um, but I do think that there's actually principles uh, that Paul addresses here uh, to the church that I think that we can learn from through the story of Palm Sunday. And something that I, I often say is that in order to understand the text that was written in first century um, Rome, we have to kind of put ourselves in the story. Uh, we have to get inside the shoes of the people that were the audience. And for the story of uh, the triumphant entry, uh, we see that uh, there's tons of people that we could put our feet in their shoes. So if you would, uh, just for a minute, try and follow with me and try and put yourself, visualize, use your imagination, and try and put yourself in those shoes of a uh, Jewish culture in the year 33 AD. Um, imagine yourself and, and your family making this journey, this three-day-long journey that you've made three times a year, um, every year of your life for these different holidays and festivals. And this time, you're coming down for the Passover. And as you go down this same road that you go down um, every time that y'all leave your hometown and go into Jerusalem, y'all see familiar faces. Y'all see different families that y'all have seen growing up, and every time that y'all see them along the road, y'all will catch up and say, hey, how's so-and-so doing? What's, what, what's going on in y'all's life? What's new? And, and all of a sudden, they start talking just about, you know, regular small talk, like, yeah, we're doing well, like, it's overall, it's doing good. Okay, well, what's new? Like, tell me something that I haven't heard before. Well, have you heard of, have you heard of Jesus like, Jesus. Like, no, I haven't, I haven't heard of Jesus. Who's Jesus? And, and they say, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And you're like, Nazareth? Where's that? They say, well, it's, it's up on the northern part of Israel, but that doesn't matter. Uh, have you heard of anything that he has done? Have you heard of maybe like the feeding of the 5,000 or, or maybe, it, maybe the healing of the lame and allowing them to walk? And, and you're hearing these things for the first time. You're like, what in the world? Like, who is, who is this person? And so you ask, and you say, well, who, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Is he, a, is he a prophet? Is he the next priest? Like, what's, what's his story? 
And they say, well, some, some say that he's a prophet. Um, others say that he's a really good teacher. Uh, some others even say that he's just a miracle worker. Um, but then there's this, there's this story that people are saying that, that, that are making him out to be the promised Messiah. You say, Messiah? You mean, you mean the son of David, the, the, the promised king of Israel to make us a kingdom once again? They say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one. And they're like, and you're, you're hearing these stories for the first time, and you're thinking, man, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the king of Israel that has come to overthrow the most powerful nation known to man, Rome. He said, how fitting of a week would it be as we reflect on when God overthrew the most powerful nation of the time of Moses in Egypt. It just makes sense. Maybe this is the Messiah. And so you approach Jerusalem and, and you and your family are staying at your aunt and uncle's house in a little village right outside of the city gates. And as y'all get everything unpacked, y'all get settled in. It's, it's a little bit late, almost dinner time. And as you're getting prepared for dinner, you start hearing this, this noise from Jerusalem. And it's, it's not uncommon to hear a loud, chaotic noise in Jerusalem. Everybody from all over the place, all over Israel, is, are coming to Jerusalem to meet with one another and, and celebrate this, this festival of the Passover week. And, and, and so you hear all these noises, all these loud noises, all turn into this unified voice. And you look around and the people in the room, all your family members, and y'all all drop what you're doing and run to Jerusalem to see what's going on. And as you're running to Jerusalem, what you see are people climbing trees and knocking down branches and grabbing those branches, running and taking their, their shirts off and putting it before this donkey who has a man on its back. And they're all singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the highest, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the King of Israel. And you think, oh my goodness, this must be Jesus of Nazareth. This must be the promised Messiah. It, this is actually happening. He is coming during Passover week, and he and the Lord are going to overthrow this great nation of Rome that has oppressed us for so long. And then... Everything dies down. Jesus and his disciples go into the temple. It's late. They eventually come back out and go back into Bethany. And everybody disperses. But it's not a disappointing uh, dispersing, dispersing of people. It is a disbursement of excitement. Everybody's talking amongst each other. This is actually the Messiah. This is actually the promised one. Can't wait to see what this week has to show us. So you wake up with eager expectation that the next morning and you run to the temple. Whenever you're in the temple, you see Jesus. You expected him to be there. Sure enough, he is there. But he's not teaching and he's not rebuking the Roman guards or, or any, anything to do with the Roman government. What he's doing is he's throwing tables and he's whipping animals, letting them go free. And he's saying, my father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. And what he's, who he's talking to are not Roman guards. He's talking 
to Israelites. And you're like, okay, okay. Jesus, you might want to back up a little bit. You're not the king yet. Um, so let's, let's overthrow Rome first. Then we'll make you king, and then you can establish your rule amongst your people. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's actually, he's actually ruffling a lot of feathers. And so people are like, ah, this doesn't seem like a very king-like thing to do. And then the next day, all you see Jesus doing is getting in arguments and confrontations. And you're thinking, okay, well, maybe that's a good thing if it's arguing the Roman officials. No, he's arguing the Jewish leaders. He's arguing the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. They're all asking him these questions. And then they, they ask him one question that kind of, kind of shows his hand. They say, hey, Jesus, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? Jesus kind of sarcastically grabs a coin and says, whose face is on this coin? Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. And all of a sudden, your mind changes from this is the promised king, this is the Messiah, to this is no king at all. He's telling us to give to the very establishment, the very, very empire that we thought he was going to overthrow. And then you hear these officials start murmuring and saying, hey, we need to put this man on trial. This, this guy, he, he claimed to be king. He, he's claiming to be the son of God, and he, he's claiming to do all these things, but we haven't seen a single act of mercy or a single healing or any type of miracle this week. All we've seen is him ruffle feathers. We need to put this man to death. So all of a sudden, your mind switches from this is the promised Messiah, Hosanna, the one to come and save us, to maybe he's just a fraud. And Thursday comes and it goes, and then Friday you wake up and you hear another roar of a crowd in Jerusalem. And this time it's unified once again. You're wondering what in the world are they saying? And as you run to Jerusalem and you, and you approach Pontius Pilate's courts, you start hearing them say, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then you see this man who is, who is torn to pieces, who's bleeding and has a crown of thorns on his head. And then you hear Pontius Pilate say, what should you have me do with Jesus of Nazareth? And in your mind, you're thinking, this is the same man that I thought was going to be our king, that I thought was going to overthrow this empire. What kind of king is this? And so the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And you, thinking he's a fraud, join in. Crucify him, crucify him. And I think as we fast forward 2,000 years and we examine our own hearts and we, and we look at this text that we're about to jump into, I think what we have to see in, in the correlation between the two stories is that oftentimes we look to Christ and we look to Jesus and we say, we have this expectation for what you ought to do for me. And when he doesn't do that for us, we turn on him. 
You say, I don't want anything to do with him. He's not what he promised to be. And what in actuality is that you have put promises in his mouth. You have, you have said to yourself, oh, yes, I'm a son or I'm a daughter of a king. I should be getting all of these riches. I should be getting everything handed to me. And Jesus never promised that in his kingship. So I want us to look at three things that Paul talks about here. And I want us to see that Jesus is king over these three things. The first thing is Jesus is king over our suffering. The second is Jesus is king over our weakness. The third, Jesus is king over our death. First point, we're going to have to jump past verse 7. We'll come back to it. First point is seen in verses 8 and 9. It says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to, to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You see, it seems strange, as I was reading through this passage, it seems strange that Paul, and we've, we've gone through chapter 3 already, and then Matt started um, chapter 4 last week, but it seems strange that he would go from painting this beautiful picture of what this new covenant is. We've just gotten out of the Exodus uh, series. We saw what the glory of the, new, or of the old covenant was through Moses, revealed through Moses and the law. And now Paul's saying, this new covenant that you have is far more beautiful. This new covenant has, has the ability to transform the hearts of men, the hearts that were once stone. This new covenant is so much more glorious and it is revealed through the life and the face of Christ. It has completely unveiled the glory of God. You're like, yes, amen, absolutely. I'll sign up for that. And then Paul immediately jumps in to a theology of suffering. He says, if you want to sign up for this new covenant, this glorious new covenant, then you're also signing up to suffer just like your king suffered. You see, he's, he's saying this, and it seems strange, but he's saying this because he's writing, if y'all remember, he's writing to these people in um, Corinth that have had these new ministers come in with this false prosperity gospel, saying that blessing is equal to your righteousness. If you live a righteous life, then the Lord will bless you, whether it be financially, whether it be with skills, the job that you want, the boat that you want, whatever it might be, if you are righteous... You'll get it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That is not at all what Jesus promised. We need to correct your expectations of who the king is. You see, the false gospel has a lot to say about a Christian gaining everything. But it has nothing to say about the Christian who lost everything. These new ministers in Corinth have nothing to say about suffering. They have nothing to say about death. They have nothing to say about the judgment that is to come. They, but the new covenant, covenant of righteousness and the Spirit, is where God meets human beings like you and me right in the midst of our suffering, right in the face of death. And he takes on the judgment. He does this because he sees that we... In, in times of suffering and in times of pain, we are in our deepest need. 
He knows that we don't need a fancy new car. He knows that we don't need this this glorious job or, or this high status. He knows that we need a Savior who can empathize with us. Charles Spurgeon, uh, we quote him all the time. He is a uh, he was a pastor, um, preacher, one of the greatest preachers to ever live. Um, he was a Baptist, and he uh, lived in the 19th century in England. And um, he struggled with depression and anxiety pretty much his whole adult life. Uh, there were weeks at a time where he would go from nothing but um, nothing but lying in his bed to then come Sunday, he'd get dressed, he'd go behind the pulpit, and then deliver this magnificent sermon um, only to step out from behind the pulpit, go back home, and lie in bed. Weeks at a time, he was in this deep, dark depression. And he says this about suffering. He says, write this down then, Christian. Jesus did not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bore a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. You see, what Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9 and following, and and what Spurgeon is saying there is that when you're signing up for this glorious new covenant, that it, it is magnificent. And it is such a beautiful gift of grace. What you're signing up for is to suffer in the same way that Christ suffered. See, there are likely many of you in here that I understand um, are going through different seasons of suffering. And you're, and you're not really sure what to make of it. Uh, you, you think, Lord, I think you could establish your purposes and I think you could accomplish your goal of, of reaching the nations with the gospel without me going through what I'm going through right now. Whether it be pressure from school or work or, or whether it be pressure from your family or whether it be a marriage that seems to be crumbling around you. Rather, whether it be anything, anything exterior that is, that is causing this pressure to come upon you, Paul says, guys, you will suffer, but the Lord will not let you be destroyed. He will not let your soul be destroyed. Your body, maybe, but not your soul. Why? It's because Jesus, because God has given us this treasure We are but jars of clay, but we hold in ourselves this treasure of the new covenant. So what is is that treasure? What is the treasure of the new covenant? Well, I think you have to go back to uh, verses 4 or through 6 of chapter 4 that Matt covered last week. But this is introducing our second point, which is Jesus is king over our weakness. And he, he does that by giving us this treasure. This treasure is what it says in verse uh, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, this treasure is a treasure of power. It's a treasure of power. So, okay, okay well, what, what, real quick, why did, why did Paul talk about jars of clay? What was he talking about whenever he was saying, we are but clay pots? Jars of clay back in the first century, uh, they were literally used as dumpsters. Um, you would have them outside your house. You would 
throw all of your trash and garbage and food waste and everything in there, and then you would take it and then dispose of it somewhere else. And the reason why they did that, it wasn't because, as y'all could probably imagine, the clay pots weren't super light, but it was as they transported it, if it got cracked or if it got chipped or if it just broke into a bunch of pieces, it didn't really matter. You could just go get another one. It was very invaluable. There, there, there wasn't much value to those clay pots. You could very easily get another one. And so what Paul is saying here is, yeah, okay, these people are attacking my character. They're saying, look how wealthy we are, and then look how poor Paul is. Look how free we are, and look at Paul sitting in prison, writing to you from prison. And, and Paul says, you know what? They're right. I'm nothing but a clay pot. If God wanted to use somebody else, he could use somebody else. There is nothing that is important to, there's nothing that is about you that is important enough to the gospel that God couldn't just use somebody else for. Don't think of yourself so highly that you think the Lord needs you. The apostle Paul didn't think that the Lord needed him Lord definitely doesn't need you, but guess what? He has placed this, this immeasurable gift, this, this extremely valuable treasure inside of you. He has given you value, and he has given you worth, and he has, he has given purpose to the pain and the weakness that you experience in this life. We are but clay pots, and why? So that God can express his power so that we might sing out, Hosanna, Jesus is king over our suffering. Hosanna, Jesus is king over our weakness. And lastly, Hosanna, Jesus is king over our death. Look at verses uh, 10 through 12 with me for a second. Paul says this, he says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death at work in us, but life in you. Commentator uh, Paul Barnett says, We come to appreciate how powerful God is, only when we acknowledge the certainty of our own death. You see, each and every one of us experience pain and experience suffering and experience the, the extent of what our weakness actually is because it's all pointing us to one unified end, death. We will all experience death, whether it be today, tomorrow, 50 years from now, Whenever it may be, you and I all have the same fate in this world. And that is the fate that Christ had. As he stood there marred and, and beaten and, and has a crown of thorns on his head, and he looks humiliated. He was approaching the face of death. He was doing so with the hope, the knowledge that he was king over it. 
Paul says in a letter to the church in Galatia, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And Jesus said, if you wish to be my, my disciple, then take up your cross and follow me. You see, this message that we hold to as Christians, that we come together every Sunday and then whatever day you meet as a community, as a community group, we come together with a message of death. It's a little strange. It's a little strange. But it's not a message that ends in death. It's a message that, that ends in the resurrection, resurrection of Christ. And it's a message that through the power that, that resurrected Christ and through the power that is able to say, let there be light, and then look at, at people around you and you say, man, how could their heart of stone ever be turned into a heart of flesh? How could they ever be brought out of darkness. And God says, I brought you out of darkness, didn't I? I can look at them and I can say, let there be light and their soul will be made anew. So because of that power, that's why we're here today. This illustration might not make sense to, uh, to some of you. And, and honestly, I didn't love it as it came to my mind, but I couldn't get it out of my mind as I was going through this passage. Um, but uh, I was thinking about chapter 3 and how, it, how Paul jumps from such a beautiful picture that he's painting in chapter 3 to this, this picture of suffering and, and death in chapter 4. And the way I thought about it was he's painting this picture and then he shows it to you. What it actually is is the front of a box. And the box is a puzzle box, right? So it's this beautiful picture, right? And he takes it and he says, this is the new covenant. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what the spirit is able to do that the law was not able to do. And you're like, yes, amen, absolutely. And then he takes the top of the box off. And then he starts talking about, we don't lose heart being a part of this covenant. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. There's nothing to lose heart about. Like, this is a great thing. What are you talking about? And then he starts talking about how you're nothing but a clay pot. You're very replaceable. In fact, you are going to experience nothing but suffering in this fallen world. There might be days of like gladness and joy and happiness, and that's great. That's a mercy of the Lord. He says, but this world that we're living in is nothing but suffering. And he, and he takes the box with all the puzzle pieces and he dumps it on the floor. And then you look at all this stuff and you, you see your suffering, you see your pain, and you see your grief, you see your weakness, and you're like, I have no idea how that is going to look like what's on the box. I think we've all been there before whenever we see a puzzle, especially with like the big ones with a thousand pieces, 10,000 pieces, whatever it is. And you're like, this, this piece isn't fitting here. This, this one doesn't go anywhere. I can't find the piece. And, and what Paul is doing is he's getting the outline there. And in chapter three, he's putting the outline of this is what the covenant's going to look like. We have to put the outline there first. And you have to understand that this is what we're expecting you have to understand that in that expectation, there's suffering and there's pain. And so he looks at you and he says, that depression, that anxiety that you just cannot seem to get over, that goes right here. Or, or you just lost your job. That's, you're not able to provide for your family right now. You're, you're wondering where the Lord is, how he's, how he's going to provide for your family. That piece goes right there. And you look at your children and, and one of them's sick and one of them's been sick for a long time. And you're trying to figure out what the purpose of this suffering 
is. It's pointing to a death. And Paul says, give me that piece. That goes right there, right next to the cross of Christ. And after a while, after you, after you go and, and through all of your pieces of suffering, and Paul is placing it all right here in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Jesus is king over all of it. Yes, that Friday ended with Jesus taking the place of the Passover lamb, of him being crucified on the cross. But three days later, the power that said, let there be light, is the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave. And that is the power that we hope in. It's also the power that we look to every week as we transition to the table and we transition to communion. Is if we take the body that was broken for us and we dip it into the juice, it's symbolizing the, the blood that was poured out for us. And we as a, a family of Christians, we take this meal and, and we remember the death of Christ. And we understand that the pain and the sufferings all pointing to the eventual death of ourselves. But we not only remember the death of Christ, but we're also looking forward to the life to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says that I want you to take this meal until he comes. Saying there is going to be an end to us taking communion. We take it every week here, but there's going to be an end to that. And he says that day is going to be when Jesus returns the resurrected body, and he's going to resurrect his body. This is the hope that we look forward to. And so, and I say we as in, as in those who proclaim Christ as their Savior. And so if you're not necessarily in that boat today, if you're saying, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a Christian, um, then, then we would ask for you to abstain. And there's a reason behind that in that same passage, around that same passage that I was referring to of Paul saying you should take the bread and the cup um, until he comes. He also says that anybody who takes it in an unworthy manner is bringing condemnation upon themselves. And so as someone who, who, who loves you and cares for your soul, we ask that you, uh, you don't approach the table in an unworthy manner. We ask that you would stay in your seat and and use this opportunity to pray and reflect on this calling, this calling of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, um, Lord, for who you are. Lord, we thank you that uh, the suffering that we we experience in this life, um, Lord, whether it is the loss of a loved one, whether it is the sickness of a loved one, whether it is loss of a job or, or anything else, Lord, we know that, that we hold to a gospel that speaks plainly into our losses, that speaks plainly into our suffering and speaks plainly into our grief. And so as we, as we enter into this holy week uh, in preparation for Good Friday and, and uh, Easter, Lord, uh, we... We look to you, our God, our King, who endured everything so that we might endure some things. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your Son. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.